morning, church. Yeah, it's great to see all of you. Um, I had intentions on being here in the first two weeks of August, uh, and then sadly, uh, both my wife and I, we both got COVID, so um, it is just I've just been dying to see you all, and so it's been great to, to, to be here today. Doug sent me a text message uh, yesterday, and that text message, you know, I was expecting this wisdom from a seasoned church planner who had, had been there, and, and his, his text was simply three words. He said, don't get COVID. Um, and so, responded back to him, we're good to go here. Um, I'll be with you here for uh, a couple of weeks in October, so, and then um, I'll be back in two weeks on September 25th with you all. This Tuesday, I'm actually taking my transfer examination into the Chesapeake Presbytery. Uh, This is the opportunity where pastors take the candidate and love to use him as a platform for all their theological hobby horses. So just pray that this is either going to go one of two ways, right? It's going to be very procedural and I'll be done in five, ten minutes, or it could go for who knows how long as pastors argue on the floor. So pray for Tuesday, pray for me um, as we get ready for that. And also, um, just to let you know that um, we officially moved to Maryland on October 29th. Now, I have heard a hallmark of City of Hope people. In fact, one of the qualifications for membership of the church is that you have to help people move here. And so on October 29th, we are going to be taking all of our stuff and putting it in a storage facility. Um, We are waiting for the housing market to cool down a little bit here, trying to get everything settled in. And then October 30th, on that Sunday, is going to be the installation service where uh, my mom has already promised to bring Korean lunch for all of you who are in attendance. So it's going to be a wonderful time. Uh, We're really excited uh, to be with you all in that way. And um, over the past month, I've gotten to get to know some of the elders and deacons and deacon assistants. And I just want to tell you, we're, we're just so excited. You have a leadership that loves you all. You have a leadership that has cared for you well during difficult times. And so we're, I'm just, we're so thankful to be here and, and to be with you all. Um, so let's get right down to it. We're going to return right where we left off in James chapter 3. Um, we have titled this sermon series, and Eric, if you want to put that up, um, Walking in Wisdom Together. Now, forgive this artistic graphic here. Um, this is my first crack at making a worship you know, title slide, sermon series, graphic, and using Canva. And so I asked Doug, you know, what should we put on there? And he said, owls. We need owls. And so owls are, I guess, an animal of wisdom. Um, I didn't grow up with that cultural background, but that's good. And why are we talking about walking in wisdom together? Um, Because James is often used and often read as an individual self-help book. But when we remember what the book of James is all about, These were letters that were written not to individuals, but to churches. They would have been sent to church churches to be read in the context of the church, wisdom to be lived out together. And so rather than just seeing this as, what does this mean for me? The book of James is actually, what does this mean for the collective community and the body of Christ? And so we are going to look at perhaps the greatest challenge to the church about what Doug was talking about last week with a dead faith and an alive faith. We're going to talk about the greatest challenge to a church in living this out, and that is our tongues. And so uh, before we begin, could we pray? Um, let's, Let's pray to the Lord. Father, let your word speak to us today to make us the body of Christ that longs to be united to Christ in our speech. 
life-giving words that are uncompromising in truth and unending in love. Let this time cause us to see the need for the living word to be in our lives and hearts. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Um, I'd like to begin with a story uh, told by the author, theologian, uh, Samuel Logan, in his excellent book called The Good Name. Um, In church history in 362 AD, the Roman emperor Julian was wondering how he was going to get the pagan temples up and running again without the interference of those pesky Christians getting in the way of his political agenda. You see, at, at this point in history, Christianity had spread through the Roman Empire like a tidal wave. About less than 50 years after the Roman uh, Emperor Constantine declared that Christianity was legal. And so without persecution, Christianity grew in such a way that it became this cultural and political force. So the Emperor Julian didn't want any pushback from Christians for reopening the pagan temples again. So how would Julian pass his agenda? Did he do it through persecuting Christians, jailing them up? No, well, actually, Julian being a really crafty politician, he had another strategy. He knew that the Christians at the time were in the middle of this huge theological debate called the Arian heresy. And he knew that these bishops were all in disagreement with one another, and they were publicly disagreeing with each other slanderously in the public square. And so he did what any sneaking person would do. He brought all of the Christian bishops to his temple and politely advised them to lay aside their differences and observe their own beliefs and have them dialogue with each other without fear of opposition. Now, how do you think that conversation amongst Christian bishops went? Sam Logan writes this, As the freedom to disagree increased the Christian's dissension, Emperor Julian knew afterwards that he had no fear of a united Christianity knowing as he did from experience that no wild beasts are such enemies to mankind as are most of the Christians in their deadly hatred of one another. And he was right. The Christians of Julian's day turned their tristies and their blogs and their twitifies against each other while the emperor Julian reopened the pagan temples back to the masses with little opposition. You see, in other words, while Christians were fighting for the right theology Amidst the terrors of the Arian heresy, they did so in such a way that their speech demolished their testimony before a watching world. So today I want to ask you a question to consider. What does it mean for the church to speak like a Christian? I imagine that there are many of you who have thoughts about this regarding this question Sadly, I imagine that for you, the phrase, speak like a Christian, conjures many negative stereotypes because of the very same connotations that Emperor Julian had, that Christians often speak in a manner that is indistinguishable from the rest of the world. You know, our sermon passage might be very familiar to many of you, but we often miss this text in its intended audience. James isn't concerned about some vague and general moral principle about how one individual should speak to another individual. James is specifically addressing how the gathered body of Christ, the church, ought to see how their speech imitates the Savior and God whom they worship. Unlike the way that perhaps some of us were taught to apply this text of Scripture, James isn't so much interested in vocab words. 
right? And I'm not going to say any of those vocab words right now, right? But, but he's so much, James is talking about the, the, what our words say about the Christ that we profess and have given our lives to. So today, we're looking at four things, for those of you who love to take notes. Four things. One, uh, the power of words. Two, the evil of words. Three, the, the condemnation of words. And four, the redemption of words. So the power of words, the evil of words, the condemnation of words, and the redemption of words. So, so let's get right to our first point, the, the power of words. Um, with the power of words comes the power of influence. James starts here in chapter 3, verse 1, by reminding the churches that he's writing to that the words of those who will teach will be held in greater strictness. Now, teachers in Jesus' days would have been akin to prominent social influencers of our generation. You know, they, they had platforms, they were speaking in the public square, and their words, you know, they had endorsements, teachings that would carry major weight for those that would listen to them. It was like YouTube, but real life. James's caution is that not many should seek the power of becoming a teacher because those in the position of authority are held responsible for the power they have in their words and the way in which it's communicated, and more so for the teachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in other words, James is reminding him of Jesus' words in the gospel of Mark 12, 40. That Christians who like to be seen, who long for power through the power of words, who, who long for the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast, who devour widows' houses and, and for pretense make long prayers, James, Jesus saves some of his strongest words of condemnation for them, and he says that they will receive the greater condemnation. But it isn't just teachers that should consider the power of words. It's all of us that all of us stumble in this. In verse 2, James makes this bold claim that if anyone can speak rightly all the time, this person is a perfect person. Now realize what the gravity of what James is saying here. The power of words is the power to define your ethics. And if anyone able to do this perfectly, then their moral character is without sin. So what does this mean for us today? Um, There are many ways I'm sure that this could be applied, but I want to focus on one popular notion that we need to debunk right now, and this is the license that we've given to influential people to claim this. You know, I I don't care what that man says. I care about what he does. That seems to be a very common thing that you hear nowadays, right? I don't care what the man says. You know, he can say whatever he wants. He can speak a little rough around the ages. I just care about what he does. Now, Certainly we know what is meant by a phrase like this, that oftentimes we have people who speak imprecisely and that their actions do speak louder than words, but, but Scripture is clearly rebuking this line of thinking. The Bible is saying here, show me a person and I will show you who they are and how they speak. Our words are not just a slip of the tongue. It's not just a common mistake. It opens up a window to our hearts and gives us access to the master control room of the soul. And this is why James is talking about the power of words to control us. Verses 3 through 5 give two analogies driving home the controlling nature of words, like a horse being guided by a bit, like, like a rudder that controls a ship. We can move our tongues to take us to the destination of drawing nearer to Christ, or we can take our words and steer us off of a cliff or hit an iceberg. In other words, James is here is saying that the way that we use our words is an outward expression of the God that we worship. If you worship yourself, 
you will believe authenticity is God, and you will want power for yourself. So, you know, I can say whatever I want to because I'm king. I'm just keeping it 100. If you worship others, then people-pleasing will be God, and you will want others to have power over you and your words. You know, I will say whatever you want me to say, unless, of course, you want me to stop me and you want me to say something different. If you worship Christ, then he will control your speech and give it true power because it will be him controlling your life in the best way possible. And you will say, you know what? I will say what God wants me to say because Jesus is king. Do you know why we find extremism on social media so disturbing? You see, because at the end of the day, it's a disgusting way to try and gain power using words. In the search for influence, morality, control outside of Christ, we see individuals at an alarming rate presenting fictitious identities of themselves online, spreading misinformation to advance extreme agendas, and others using their words to further divide, separate, and manipulate people into us versus them. Narratives that bring us into perpetual verbal war. It's gotten so bad now, by the way, that there are now organizations, this is like the biggest trend now, organizations have come up to try and understand how this could have happened so fast, so quickly. There's this great book by Chris Bale uh, called Breaking the Social Media Prism. It talks about his work at the director of the, the Polarization Lab at Duke University. And this is an organization that uses computational sciences to, discuss, to determine how social media became so divided and radicalized? And how did it radicalize fringe views? His work comprised of interviewing political extremists who appeared to be brash and violent in their posts, but the surprising nature of his research is that when he met the extremists in real life, he was shocked that the way that they acted were shells of the online personas that they had created. He discovered that they sought to use their online experience to curate a new identity, an identity that would be bolder, brasher, and angrier than the persona in their real lives of living destitute, poor, living in areas that all they could do was just watch cable news all day. But in doing so, and this was notable in his research, the personas they created didn't give them the power that they had hoped. You see, it was a delusion that did radical harms to others and silenced the voice of the moderate listeners. And so his conclusion after his research was groundbreaking. Um, The studies suggest that against popular belief, it's, it's not the echo chambers and the algorithms that are blamed for the polarization. Rather, it's select groups that use their words to create power for themselves when they have none in the real world. So 73% of tweets on politics are shared only by 6% of Twitter users. So 73% of all news you see on social media is just 6% of radicals. So is it no wonder that all of us just sort of feel a little bit of dread when we open up the apps, right? What am I going to see that's going to traumatize me again this week? And this leads us to our second point, that the power of words will inevitably lead us to the evil of words. Verse 5, look at this. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. It stains the body. Destruction leads the entire course of life to a pathway to hell. Notice that James here is not just talking about the individual here. James is asking for the church to consider its collective witness in the way that we talk. Imagine hearing these words as they were read out loud in the church. 
you know, we're all looking at each other and hearing these words. The force that James is calling for us to, to hear is clear. We can say things to one another in the church in such a way that it renders us ineffective. In other words, our words here as a church, City of Hope, will either be a catalyst for the kingdom of God to grow in Longreach, Columbia, the rest of the world, or will be a catastrophe of hell. That's what's on the line with our words. To speak like a Christian is for the church to speak like Christ. The church's word could be a spark that burns down the entire forest of the disciples that the Great Commission is calling us to make. Think of, you know, California wildfires and the destruction that is caused by the sheer ridiculousness of a small match, an unintended campfire, or because, you know, it was 2020, a gender reveal party, right, that sets ablaze this huge forest in the case of the El Dorado fire of of 2020. There, There is no such thing as a small slip of the tongue that cannot and does not do irreparable harm. There is nothing in the category of the Christian community as, you know, the innocent lie, harmless gossip, true fiction. But verse 8 reminds us that all such things are a restless evil, a deadly poison. We cannot try and make evil good. No matter how much we try to dress it up or justify our speech, it is unrelenting the ways in which our tongues and mouths can cause trouble. Uh, Consider what the Westminster Larger Catechism, our church's confessional statements, has to say on the very issue of this in the Ninth Commandment. Um, They did not wish to mince any words on any pathway that someone can get into when thinking about the implications of what does it mean for someone to not lie. So uh, I'm going to read this in full and quickly because I believe it's an important facet for all of us to consider. Uh, Here we go. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? Here we go. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors, as well as our own, especially in public justice, giving false evidence, bringing false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence and just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others, speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful or equivocal expression to the prejudice of the truth or justice, speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tailbearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censury, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins, when called to a free confession, unnecessarily discovering infirmities, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or designing to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, scorn for contempt, fond of admiration, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things that are of good report, and practicing or not avoiding ourselves, we're not hindering what we can in others, such things as procure an ill name. Now, as you hear that, what, what jumps to your mind? If your first instinct was to say, yeah, all those people suck, and you're not applying this to yourself, right? Um, then might I ask you to reread this again and ask yourself some questions. What evils have we allowed to store in our own hearts and our speech? What, what things do we allow ourselves to say? How have we allowed the poisonous nature of our words to gain a foothold in our hearts and minds? 
Do we really consider the weight of all that is meant when we're saying, thou shalt not lie? Because here's the thing, I don't know about you, um, you know, maybe just City of Hope people are better with their speech than I am, but, but when I look at this, when I look at all of this, uh, I realize that apart from the grace of God in my life, I am not just a liar. I, I am a profoundly wicked liar. I will not only find ways to lie about the way that I lie, but I will also lie to myself about why I did it. And, you know, I can only come to one conclusion in all of this, and I, and I want you to consider this as well. If what the Bible is saying here about words is true today, then I am not only being poisoned by these lies, but I am bringing literally and figurative hell to myself and others. Doug's favorite words, literally and figuratively. And it will be the false judgment we carry on to others will condemn us. Now, at, at this point, you might be feeling a weight here. Uh, you, you feel the gravity and weight of this sin, but, but there's something greater that I want you all to consider here today. That if this is indeed the burden of guilt that we are responsible for, then, then that must mean this. The grace of Jesus Christ is a far greater fountain of hope than any of us could ever have imagined. A God who looks at all of this junk that comes from just what we say the guilt and punishment that surely must be ours. And he says, I will still love these people. I will send my son to save these people so that they might know the full and free grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll pursue them in their lostness despite what they have said and love them all the same. You see, if we fail to see that, then we will fall into the third danger of our text here today. It's not just... The words have power, our first point, or that words become evil, our second. But the third, uh, there carries condemnation, the condemnation of words. James is concerned that the community of faith that is spread in the dispersion is now trying to speak as though that they were the ultimate judge of faith. The end of verse 9 in our text shows us that Christian lives in the hypocrisy of proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, but then turning around and using that same mouth to curse those that Jesus died for. It's ultimate hypocrisy, right? To, to sing in the church that God is our Father and Jesus is Lord and we will feast in the house of Zion and then to turn to others and try to prove that you are the God and the Lord of the universe by cursing them. See, cursing here is not just merely the use of certain words and phrases. The word has a force in the original meaning of judgment, slander towards a fellow man. There, there's sort of this final judgment quality that you are making on an individual when you speak ill of them. A self-righteousness that you are imposing on that people group, that tribe, that church, that public figure when we slander their name. And when you do so, James has said that you are forgetting the Jesus that you worship. You are the person who looks into a mirror, sees a sinner who's been redeemed by the grace of God, and when God could have judged you, and then forgets what you just saw and smashes that mirror over the head of another image bearer of your cursing of them. And so you've got to think to yourself, how do you try and get away with this? What gives the right for us as sinners to look at another and say, you know, you deserve less of Jesus than I do? You know, I want to address one way that we as sinners try to cleverly absolve ourselves in this hypocrisy. Um, lately, what concerns me as a pastor is what I've been hearing people say. It's claiming it's okay for Christians to slander others because after all, didn't Jesus do it? Didn't the apostles do it? 
Didn't John the Baptist frequently use name-calling as a part of their prophetic witness? I mean, if it was okay for Jesus, is it okay for us? Didn't Jesus call the Pharisees twice the sons of hell, brood of vipers? Why then is the Christian limited in only speaking loving words if Jesus himself used what we would call inflammatory language? And my quick response to that is simple. Uh, Slander is slander, and don't bring Jesus into your sin. But but if you want more detailed response, uh, there is a Dutch uh, theologian by the name of Herman Bobink who quotes the Genevan Reformed Benedict Pectic in examining this issue, and, and he proposes three corrections to the Christian who thinks slander is appropriate because Jesus did it. Number one, you're not Jesus, um, so there are privileges and benefits that aren't granted to you. There is nothing infallible about your claims. Number two, God has granted Jesus the authority to call rightful judgments, and unless you have a voice from God telling you to do it, you don't have that authority. Number three, the purpose and goal that Jesus and the apostles had in mind with their fierce denunciations differ greatly from what people generally have in mind when they berate other people. So you see, the danger is that the prevailing nature of humanity is that we are all addicted to slander as a means of public discourse. And false condemnation is a stain on the history of the church. You see, Christians of every age embrace the tireless act of acting like a bully in the playground towards others who would oppose them. The Apostle Peter towards the other disciples. The early church father, Tertullian, in his treatment of others. Martin Luther, the champion German reformer, was so famously irresponsible with his language that you can go to a website right now called the Martin Luther Insult Generator, and it will randomly generate for you a quote from Martin Luther where he is slandering against someone else. Jonathan Edwards, his defense of the institution of slavery. Machen, the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, who did not want African Americans to study at Princeton Seminary. You see, we tend to lionize church history, but we need to stop defending poor speech as just, you know, oh, they're just a product of their time, or it's complicated. Try and smooth it away. Evil is evil, no matter where we find it. Perhaps it would be better for us to take the stance of the reformer John Calvin, who wrote in his commentary of this text, this quote, He who truly worships and honors God will be afraid to speak slanderously of man. So what are then we to do? Um, You know, perhaps you've come to this point in the sermon and all you feel is guilt. You see yourselves in these sins and you feel helpless. Or maybe perhaps in the sermon it makes you defensive. Maybe you're thinking to yourself that it seems all the, that I'm just getting you to say is that we should just go out and just pretend. God loves you, kumbaya, that's all we can say. And look, I get it. We're, we're afraid of word policing and tired of inauthentic voices in the name of civility. But, but Scripture is giving us something higher to shoot for than a mere caution of the words that come out of our mouth. James finishes this section by talking about our last point here, which is the redemption of words. The redemption of words. Verses 10 through 12 gives three rhetorical analogies. A spring that produces two kinds of water, trees that produce different kinds of fruit, a salt pond producing fresh water as a means of showing us what redeeming words look like. The redemption of words can only be found from being united to the foundation of the living word of Christ. When you live out of union with Christ, the natural outpouring of the church will be a speech that embodies Christ as our head. 
Because let me remind you of what union with Christ looks like when we think about Jesus and the way that he models this for us in his life. Jesus comes as, John chapter 1, the living word, logos, the perfect logos who spoke truer than any man before him and any man that would come after him. The word isn't a distant reality that speaks to us from afar and has no sympathies from the state of the world that we live in. No, this word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word who speaks compassion and weeps for Lazarus, knowing, even though Christ knows that he will rise again. The word who speaks healing to the demonically possessed, speaks to the lame to rise and walk, talks with those who no one else in society would talk to. The leper, the prostitute, the afflicted, the blind, the poor. The one who speaks with the Samaritan woman words of grace and invitation. The word who calls his disciples to fervently teach the gospel. The words of good news. The word that forgives his disciples for abandoning him and calls them into ministry despite them deserving just condemnation for their betrayal. The word, Jesus Christ himself, who saw through the lies of the religious people of his day, those religious people that could wax eloquent and yet whose hearts were far away from God. This Christ speaks words of forgiveness even on the cross, extending paradise to the broken thief and pleading with God the Father to forgive his tormentors for they know not what they do. This Jesus who extends the same redemption to you And what is the great promise of Romans 10? That if you confess with your mouth, your words, that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And because of that, you are his. You are united to him. So speaking like a Christian isn't just about restraint, about how you really want to speak if only if you could. Speaking like a Christian is about speaking about Christ's love, grace, compassion, mercy, justice, and truth in a way that opens the door for redemption for others. To go and make disciples through the spreading of the good word. To consider how the very words you speak will bring new life into those around you, your families, your relationship at work, your friends. When you live, and when we live as a church, with Christ as the head, You see, as his body, our outflow, our output isn't capable of producing anything else. It's not the fruit of this world. As we learned with Pastor Doug, it's the fruit of joy, peace, patience, kindness, love, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the hope of James for his community and the hope of the word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, that by the power of his spirit, it's hopefully convicting your heart as it did mine. So what does it mean to speak like a Christian? It's for the church to rise up and realize that speaking like a Christian means speaking as those who are united to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to see how our words have affected others and to turn to the living word turn to the true Logos, Lord, and to see all that you are and all that you are doing. Lord, how we can consider how to speak words of life as a church 
to a word in need of words of healing, words of reconciliation, words of truth.